I want to invite you at this time to open God's Word. Could you take them and turn to John chapter 2? So if you have God's Word, uh, open that. If you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, I think it'll be page 983, John chapter 2. And I'm going to ask Stephanie Robinson to come. She's going to begin begin reading actually in verse 13 of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What if you knew there was a place on earth where you could go to meet with God? What if you you knew there was a specific location where you could be certain that the God of the universe, who rules everything, who set all of this into motion, if you knew you could go to that particular place and you could have an encounter with God, what if you knew maybe it's 50 miles away or 75 miles away or 20 miles away, you could go to a location, a sacred space, and you could know that God would be ready to meet you there and have a relationship with you a place where you could know that you could hear from him and you could know that he hears you? What if there was a place where you knew you could be forgiven and where you could go and be assured of that forgiveness, assured that God loves you? What if there was a a specific place where you could go to, to get guidance on major decisions for your life. And you could know that God would hear your request for that guidance. And you know you could hear him. What if there was a specific place of worship and sacrifice and and prayer and praise? Well, that description is exactly, was exactly what the temple was meant to be. We read in the Bible a lot about the temple, both Old and New Testament. And the promise of the temple, the promise it held out for the people of Israel was that God would meet people there. So after God had redeemed his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage, it's not too long after that that he instructs them, this is God's initiative, instructs them to construct a a tent, which would be a temporary structure, but, but that temporary structure eventually is replaced by a more permanent structure, and that tent of meeting becomes the temple. And the whole idea of God saying, I want you to build a tent, is to signify that he was going to be present with his people, 
that he would meet with them and they could meet with him. And throughout the years, Israel went through a lot. And you can read beginning in Genesis all the way to Malachi and you read these just ups and downs of Israel and their history and and how much they go through. And and even the temple that is built gets destroyed, gets completely destroyed and gets knocked down and they rebuild a temple. And actually the the next temple that they rebuild is is a huge temple. It's bigger than the one Solomon built. And every time you could ask someone, why are you going to the temple? What does it matter? What significance is there for the temple? I think if you were to ask anybody throughout the history of Israel, they would say, at the temple we can worship. At the temple we know God still hears us and we can still hear from him. We know God is present with us. We can go and sacrifice and deal with the sin that we have. It was a symbol that God had not given up. It's a symbol of God's promise to his people. It was a place of meeting. And yet all it takes for humans like us It's just a little bit of time. And we can take something so sacred. We can take sacred space and turn it into something that's just run-of-the-mill, something blasé. We can take something that's deeply, deeply spiritual. And we can commercialize it. We still do it. We can take something holy and we can make it a commodity. We can treat church like it's... We're just trying to get net, net more consumers and, and we're just trying to market so that we get greater market share. And we, we do this. We can do this so easily. But I, I think if we understand what the temple meant for the people of Israel and if we can understand our tendency of what, what we tend to do with even the most spiritual of things, I think we're better prepared to come into the story that Stephanie just read. It kind of, the, this story is divided up into two parts and I want us to look at both of them today. But as, as we consider the, the passage that we read, the, the first thing I want us to realize in this story is how much Jesus cares about how we worship. Jesus cares about how we worship. Did you notice as Jesus comes into the temple, he regulates how he is to be worshipped in that temple, how God is supposed to be worshipped in this temple. The first part of this passage, Jesus purifies and cleanses and honors what is, what is supposed to be a place of meeting between God and man. You read in John chapter 2 and verse 13, it was the time of the Passover. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 14, I hope your Bibles are still open. It says in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And he saw the money changers sitting there. I want you for a moment to take a look at what the, what the temple looked like in that time period. So there's different artists' renderings and, and trying to gain from history, but most look exactly like this, at least very, very close. So we have a pretty good idea that this is what the temple would have looked like when Jesus arrived in the temple for that Passover. You can see the scale. You can see how small the people are. I, I don't know that I had in my mind how large it was. There's the place with the large building, which is the, the holy place and the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And then there's kind of a, a, there's a, an inner courtyard that you see. We're told that even the inner courtyard in the Holy of Holies, that's probably like about the size of three football fields. So this is a large, large place. Jesus comes into the temple and you see kind of the outer courtyard. 
It's still in the temple proper, but, but you can see where like people might gather in that outer courtyard. And, and that's where most people would believe, have, have told us, that's where that selling would have gone down. So what would happen when you go to the Passover is you need to sacrifice. And so you needed an animal to sacrifice. And so people were there selling those animals. You also needed to go into the temple property. You had to pay a temple tax. It's a large building to, to keep it up, to keep it up and, and running. It would take a, a large amount of resources. And every time you'd go to the temple, you paid a temple tax. But, but they were very specific of what kind of currency you could use. And so people might come from all over, but they would have to, the, the temple tax would only be received in one currency. So you had to pay in that. So imagine you have to cha- exchange your money for what is, what is useful there. So, so there's a sense in which it's a reasonable service being provided. Animals and the changing of money. But the problem, the problem for Jesus in this is not so much that people needed animals or that a temple tax had to be paid. It's where this was going down. The fact that it was happening in the midst of the temple. The behavior in the temple of setting up a vendor stand to like get your bowls over here and your any goats, anybody need a pigeon, it's right over here. Anybody need, need money here? The fact that that goes on in, in that courtyard, and by the way, that courtyard was the only place where the Gentiles could go to worship and to pray. They could not go any further. They could not go into the, the holy place, even in the other courtyard. They couldn't go in there. So you, so you might have a Gentile that's wanting to worship and pray and meditate, and he might be right next to a vendor tent trying to peddle some goats for a sacrifice. So Jesus sees this. And this, he, he, he addresses it. I think sometimes our distance from customs Sometimes we need analogies to help us like, process why would this have been such a big deal. I mean, there's a big courtyard. Maybe they could, just in some space, this, this could happen. But imagine with me. I, I want you to think of another scenario in another sacred space. So I, I think it might help you feel the story a little bit more. Imagine you go into a funeral service of someone that you deeply love, you deeply cared for. So imagine, like, the funeral started. You're, you're there. The minister's getting up and talking and trying to say comforting words. And all of a sudden, right over to the right, you notice there's a vendor who's saying, I've got Kleenex for you. You're going to be crying a lot. I, I've got some. You, you need some, ma'am? You look like you're shedding a lot of tears. Sir, do you want, it? Do you want some Kleenex? I've got, I brought some. I've got some. I've got, got a special one, two for it. You know, it, you go, what on earth? Like, this is a sacred space. Who does that? Who, who would ruin a service uh, where you're grieving and remembering and embracing and crying? I mean, who would do such thing? And you pull into the cemetery, and here's the tent where there's, there's a casket, and you're, you're getting ready to commit this body to the Lord, knowing the soul's in safekeeping. And, and imagine in that moment, like right beside the, the tent for the, the body, you, right beside it is someone selling balloons and flags, and, oh, you want, you want a flag? You want a couple flags? Anybody need balloons? Anybody need some mementos to remember? Anybody want to put a flower on the casket? I've got some flowers. Do you want, do you want to purchase some? You go, what on earth? Like, this, shouldn't this be, I mean, there's a place for flowers, and there's a place for flags, and there's a place for mementos. But surely that's not the place. Surely no one needs to do buying or, or selling right there. Not at that moment. Not at that time. 
And I think when we begin to realize just how inappropriate that was, we begin to identify with what Jesus sensed as people were trying to pray and worship. As he goes in and the reaction of Jesus is stern, and it shows us that he really does care how worship is done. He really cares what happens in this temple, this place of meeting. So much of the identity and the life and the actions of Jesus were promised before he came in the flesh. And, and so we're told, I mean, if, if we read the Old Testament scripture, it doesn't surprise us how Jesus responds to, to situations like these. As a matter of fact, in Malachi chapter 3, Malachi, so that's right before the New Testament. This is the last writing of the Old Testament. And, and God says, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will sit as a refiner and purifier uh, purifier of silvers. He, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So we got a picture, don't we? We got a picture from the Old Testament of what happens when Jesus comes in for Passover time and sees all of this going on in the courtyard. We get another picture of that in Zechariah 14.21, where it prophesies, on that day there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts. That's not going to go on in the day that Jesus arrives. And so in John chapter 2 and verse 15, Jesus makes a whip of cords and he drives them all out of the temple with their sheep and with their oxen. I would imagine this was a chaotic scene. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, Jesus cares about how we worship. And so he says in that moment, what are you doing? What is going on here? Stop it. Stop it right now. Get out. Get out and don't ever come back. Don't ever come back. Because this is the one who had taught the disciples, here's how you pray. You pray, our Father who is in heaven, holy, reverent be your name. So get out and don't come back. That's not the place. If you've got to sell things, sell them outside the temple, not here. The disciples remember, remember a psalm. They remember Psalm 69.9 that says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Someone put it this way, Jesus will be so on fire for the worship of God that he will get badly burned. But you do see the zeal that he has for the Lord's house. Jesus cares about how we worship. And I think before we move on too quickly here, we can't just let this be like, yeah, you get him, Jesus. Way to go. Way to clean out that riffraff. That should never have been done. And we can easily point our finger and we can get on our, our high horse until we realize, until we realize how we approach God is still serious business. How we come to the Lord. So there's a phrase that we would use, and, and we're right to use it. We're right, right to use it regularly. It says good things, and that is come as you are. I think that's totally right. I think that's the invitation Jesus would say. I think we could misunderstand that as if we can just come however we are and we name all the terms and we tell God what he's going to do. It's not that way. I have to begin asking, just seeing kind of the, the chaotic nature of what was going on in the temple, could it be that my own worship for the Lord is distracted? Could it be that my heart 
has gotten cluttered by so many things. Could it be that my focus in prayer is just minimal, where I talk about five seconds and my mind's on to other things? Could it be that my focus in praise and worship to the Lord is virtually non-existent? Could it be that instead of being filled with thanksgiving to the Lord, I'm actually filled with cynicism and bitterness? And my heart is a very divided heart and a very distracted heart. Could it be this morning that my pride and my stubbornness has so kind of ruled me out of worshiping because it is the Lord sees those that are humble and and contrite in their heart. And and yet here I've been for a year or two or, or a decade. I've been a stubborn, proud man. Could that be hindering my worship to the Lord? Could all the conveniences that I love in life, could that actually net a negative spiritual impact on my life? Because I'm so, I've got all these things ready at my hand, could it mean that I'm less focused on the Lord? It, could it be, what, what is it that's present, pre- preventing me from really being broken before the Lord? I, I have to ask a question, like when was the last time you or I really felt our sin before the Lord and, and were, were broken because of it? Cried out to the Lord to forgive us. Or are we too busy and too distracted to feel anything like we feel, ever feel that we've done anything wrong? Do we ever linger there long enough to realize I have offended a holy God? It's, it's for sins like these that Christ died. What's preventing me from singing? Even a few moments ago, what was preventing you from really singing and enjoying the Lord without reserve? What, what was holding you back from singing with your whole heart to the Lord? What's preventing me from, from taking extended time to unburden my soul and tell God, this is what concerns me. These are the pressures that I feel. What clutters up the right relationship with God? Yeah, it's easy for me to go, Jesus, you needed to clean that temple out. Shame on them in the first place for ever doing that to the Father's house. No time for that. But then I look deeper and I recognize Jesus still cares about true worship. And the one that had authority to regulate what happened in that temple has the authority to tell me what should be going on in my heart, what should be going on in my prayers, what should be going on in my own confession. He addresses what's going on in the temple, and he gets some pushback, doesn't he? In verse 18, it says this, The Jews say to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what right do you have? You better better have some authority. I mean, it's a fair question. If you're going to just start, like, turning up tables in the temple— if you're going to drive people out, what authority do you have? What right do you have to do that? Show us. You better show us a, a trick or some, some miraculous display to tell us that you actually have the authority to do that. What's interesting to me is not so much that they ask the question. It's, it's what didn't happen and what's not said. Do you notice? I mean, you would expect inserted in the story would be, and when he tried to remove the vendors, they said, nah, we're making too much money. Or when he tried to get the money changers out, they, they reset up their table. And they told Jesus to get lost. Because they, they've been there before he came. They're going to keep on doing that. You notice none of that's said? You know the leaders don't even address that? They, they don't even try to get him arrested? Could it, be, could it be that even the crowds know something's going on? Even the crowds don't stick up for the, the people changing money and, and selling animals. The crowds don't even stick up for them. The, the best we've got is a question going, what right do you have to do this? 
Could it be in their conscience? They know this isn't right. Maybe the crowd's known it for a long time. Maybe the crowd's thinking, you know what? It is about time. It's about time. Whatever it is, it doesn't seem like the the religious leaders are convicted enough to make any sort of change. It doesn't seem like they're hearing from Jesus the way they should be going, you know what, you're right. They're going to question the protocol and the authority. So what right do you have to do this? They try to put Jesus on the spot. What sign do you show for us? And Jesus answered him. It says in verse 19, Jesus answered them. This kind of cryptic reply. Okay, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And when Jesus replies like this, and he does it all over, the, all over Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus replies like this, it seems like it invites more questions than it answers. Because immediately, you know, they're thinking, well, that, we can't even do that. We can't de- destroy the temple. We can't even prove that you, you could raise it up. We're not going to do that. So, so what, what is he even talking about? It, it, he's saying, in essence, as impressive as this temple is, and you saw the pictures. I mean, I think it would be a very impressive thing, even to this day. As impressive as that is, Jesus says, it could all be knocked down and destroyed, and I could raise it up in three days. The Jewish leaders don't understand. In verse 20, they say, it's taken 46 years to build this. Oh, and you'll raise it in three days? It's interesting, in humility, I think John, who's writing this, also acknowledges he didn't comprehend it all. Because he gives us a little side note in verse 21. He was speaking, and this is a very, very important side note. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed both the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, and it puts those on par. All the Old Testament scripture that had led up to this point, and anything that Jesus said, they believed that. They, they put their faith that the scripture was pointing to Jesus, and what he said is true because he's God's Messiah. Amazing statement. After Jesus rose, they believe it, and, and, and there are these pictures in the Old Testament, like the temple, like the sacrifices that were pointing, and they, they put it all together. They, they remember Jesus saying, Something about three days, three days, three days. Interesting how many times he talks about three days and how he talks about being raised on the third day. And they put it all together. And with the perspective of hindsight, they can go, that's what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about this structure, which, by the way, did get destroyed just a few decades later. He was talking about himself. And in three days, he rose from the, he rose from the grave they begin making connections that there actually is an ultimate meeting place beyond the temple. And the connection they make is Jesus is that meeting place. He's not just clearing the temple. He's replacing it. He's replacing it. And, and, and this is the way we could say it. There's probably a lot of better ways to say this, but, but here's one way. Jesus is introducing a new place of worship. But that new place of worship is himself. Jesus is introducing a new place of worship, if you will, but it's not a piece of ground on this earth. It's actually a person. And for now and and forever, it will always be a person. A person is the one who's going to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. 
A person is going to be the sacred space. A person is going to show us exactly how much the Father loves us. A person is going to bring the presence of God to us and going to bring us to the presence of God. A person is going to restore our relationship with the Father. All those things were things that the temple, the temple was pointing to. But now, now the temple fades in the background because the reality is present. The person is here. What the temple could only do by symbol and ritual, Jesus is doing in his flesh. And there's a saying that when it comes to like real estate and, and place, three things matter, right? Location, location, location. What, what's stunning about this is Jesus rewrites all of that and says what matters most, the location of God's presence, is actually in a person. He is. He is our temple. He is where we go to meet God. And so that gives us a, a new set of questions and a new set of things to, to really think about. It, if it really, really matters to you to be in the presence of God, to know him, if you're going to be in the place where you can meet God, then the questions are this, not like, where are your feet on a Sunday? But are you in Christ? Are you in his presence? Are you in him? Have you taken the step of going public like Lord willing, we'll see some next week go, go public with their faith and identify and say, just as God is with us, I am, I'm totally with him. Hopes, dreams, future, life, everything, my destiny is staked in him. It's what baptism represents. Are, are you meeting with God? Are you listening to Jesus speak? If you, if you want to know God, you're, you're not going to be able to go to a particular place or space on this earth going to have to listen to his words just as when the disciples heard his words, they believed. So are you hearing him speak? Are you opening his word and listening to him speak? Are you finding regular times in your day to stop whatever seems most important to you? Whatever you're doing, are you finding times to talk to this one who promised he would always be with us? Do you ask God for things in the name of Jesus? He, he's our temple. In your suffering, are you aware that there is one who walks with you and can give you peace that absolutely no one can take away? Are you confessing, are you confessing your sins knowing that a person, not a place, a person is the one who is able and just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from every bit of unrighteousness? Are you taking bold steps? Are you, are you offering yourself to Jesus? Saying, here's my life. I am a living sacrifice. I want you to guide the major and the minor decisions I make because I want to use my life to make your name known on this earth. Are you making bold decisions in the advance of the gospel, knowing what Jesus said? You go and make disciples. And I am with you wherever you go, even if it's to the end of the earth. Even if it's to the end of the age, I'm with you. You're not going alone. You're not leaving me behind. Are you making decisions recognizing Jesus is with you? See, places matter. They do matter to us. We're human. But, but make no mistake, a place cannot and does not make you right with God. Only a person can do that. 
for many, many years. Now we're in millennia. Believers in Jesus have gathered together in assemblies like this, bigger and smaller. And they've remembered something Jesus told us to do. They've remembered, and and what we call it, and I love the name of it, we call it communion. Because we're recognizing something very, very critical. And and we're going to observe communion this morning. And when we come to that table, we come to a table, and it's rightly a table of remembrance. We remember what Jesus has done. But But we do more than just remember. We have physical things that remind us of what Jesus has done. But I was thinking today, we have more than our memories today. In a moment when we take the bread and take the, take the juice, when we take the cup, we have more than our memories. Jesus has actually promised to be present with us. So where two or three are gathered, Jesus is present. This isn't like, I look around and I think this isn't like super sacred space. I mean, there's a three-point line and volleyball markings for the, I mean, this is, this is a gym. And I think, well, wait a minute. We have gathered in the name of Jesus. We've sung about him. So he, he's not just in our memory. He's present here. He's seeing, what, he's seeing what happens. He's seeing what's going on in our hearts. He's alive and well. And I think how much it must have meant to him as, he, as we sang his praise a, a moment ago and said, the cross was enough. You be lifted higher than any other name. There is no other song on this earth. Yours be sung. Yours be made. And so in a moment when we come around the table, we recognize he's with us. So this is what he's ready to do this morning. He's ready to nourish you. He's ready to strengthen you. You feel empty. He's ready to pour out his grace to you. He's ready to assure you that the covenant he made with his people 2,000 years ago is is still sealed with his blood and with his Holy Spirit. And it's still as, as sure as it ever was. It's permanent. We're in the presence of a holy God, not because this property is owned by a nonprofit corporation called Ogletown Baptist Church. We're in the presence of a holy God because the people of God who've trusted in Jesus and been baptized in the name of Jesus have come together and we meet in his name and he's promised to be with us. So what do you do when Jesus is present? What do you do with the Lord's Supper when Jesus is present? Well, what you do is you examine yourself because Jesus cares how you worship. We don't just kind of go through a ritual here. We lay our souls bare before the Lord, and in humility we go to him and we confess our sin because it is the mighty authority of God that's present in Jesus Christ. We don't play games. We don't take it lightly. But that doesn't actually keep us away from the table. We actually go to the table because in all humility and worship we take and eat because Jesus has said, you come. You're a repenting sinner. You've turned from everything else and trusted in me. You come. You come to the table. You take and eat. This is the new covenant. This is my body broken for you. We don't, we're not told to stay away. We're told to come. We're told to enjoy communion with him this morning. We just take a moment and thank him for that privilege. And then the deacons are going to come and serve us with the bread and the juice. And then We'll take it together as a church family in just a moment. Well, let's thank the Lord for his presence with us today. Father, we are humbled in your presence today. We're grateful that our Savior 
isn't just in our memories, isn't just a person that existed 2,000 years ago, but is here today ready to help, ready to save, ready to strengthen, ready to encourage us on, ready to remind us of your love for us, ready to remind us of your grace for undeserving sinners. So we take and eat knowing we are in your presence today. And we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, thank you for our our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to ask every one of our requests in his name. So we do so right now. Amen.